Well, there they go again. Some good energy going downstairs there. So again, welcome to uh, church. I'm still Graham. If you're at church online, I'm still glad you're here. And if you're at church on Main Street, I'm even more, because when I got off last time, I don't think you were all here, but now there's even more, so that's great. Together, we remain on this road trip in earnest pursuit of Christ. We are being brought together into one, and we have found hope and freedom in the love of Jesus. And that road trip is just about to board a train. Today we're jumping on the J train and traveling onward. What is the J train, you may ask? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question, and I'm going to tell you next week. I will explain it all then. Next episode, I will introduce to you what we're going to do right now. I will introduce and tell you about the layout and the plan. Next episode, I will tell you where we're heading for this week. But for now, I mostly want to tell you a story. This is a famous story. Many of you will already know the whole story, and I bet most of you will know at least parts of this story. This is a story that happened in what we describe now as the Middle East, and whenever you deal with ancient history, precise dating is challenging. Uh, Egyptologists, however, have uncovered some uh, intriguing evidence. We'll talk about that in a little bit. The story uh, begins in what uh, we would call now modern-day Palestine, some combination of Syria and Israel, and it took place about 1600 to 1700 B.C., somewhere in that area. Um, the focus of our tale today is a historical figure who was part of a large family. He was the 11th of 12 sons. There's a bunch of daughters too, but because of the way the culture works, they don't get too much attention. Sorry about that. And just to throw a curveball into your expectations, you can find this story recorded in the Quran. His father is a nomad and a polygamist. Two lifestyle elements that we struggle to understand, survival and wealth, uh, frequently tied into the number of children that you have, and so this family was strong, at least in some ways. Multiple mothers also opens up jealousy, especially when it's clear that some children are more favored than others. Story you can also find in the Jewish Scriptures, in Genesis chapter 37 to 50. One of the largest amounts of space given an explanation for any character in the Bible. One of my favorite stories. Today we're telling the story of Joseph. Thunderous applause. Okay, uh, you may re remember Joseph from such Broadway-style shows as Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. He was a, uh, even as a young boy, he was a dream machine. Everyone knew about Joseph and his dreams and his coat. And when we say he had some dreams, we normally think of plans. You know, I've got big plans for the future. I've got dreams. But big plans for the future is not what we're talking about here. This Joseph had dreams, visions given to him by God and given by him to his brothers. Uh, when Joseph was about 17 years old, instead of his dad buying him a car, dad provided him with a mantle, a robe, a richly ornamented coat. One more sign of favoritism that the other brothers just could not stand. Sometimes we call it the coat of many colors. And the coat was to lead Joseph 
uh, to two very personal colors, black and blue. Uh, sibling rivalry is common amongst children still to this day, but in the ancient world, it was a very real consequence of polygamous marriages. Joseph and his brother Benjamin are Jacob's preferred, are from um, sons of his preferred wife, Rachel, the one that he really loved, and all the rest were from other wives. The choice of colors in the coat held great prestige. Color in the ancient world, it's important for you to understand, uh, was hard to come by and therefore valuable. So vivid colors like red and purple were held in high, high esteem, and they symbolized high value and importance. Joseph's coat, red and purple, reinforced this message to his brothers that he was Jacob's favorite. It's a coat that he's wearing all the time, so they see it all the time. Wearing the fancy boy clothes didn't help when Joseph would take the time to share his vivid dreams, strange dreams, that he had been given. They didn't like the dreams. They didn't like the coat. They didn't like Joseph, and they certainly didn't like the interpretations to the dreams that they were also provided. So, on different occasions, Joseph had dreams about his brothers, about his family, and him. Once it was about stars in the sky. Once it was about sheaves of wheat. And in each case, the brothers were bowing down to Joseph in the dreams. That doesn't go over well the first time. And it certainly doesn't go over well the second time. The blood gets to boiling. The boys get to planning, and then they get to plotting. Some say, kill him, and some say, let's just punish him. And it all comes to a head one day when Joseph goes out, uh, travels out to find his brothers where they're out tending for grazing the sheep. They grab him and dump him into a dried-out cistern, which is kind of like an empty well. They grab the coat tear it, smear it with some sheep's blood, and then say, we're going to take it back to dad. Before the plan really gets figured out one way or the another, a group of traveling merchants sort of appears, and they come along with their camels and their silks and their spices and other slaves. Idea pops into the brothers' heads. Let's make a little money out of this situation. So they quickly decide to sell Joseph, to sell their own brother to sentence their own brother into slavery, to do something truly evil, and then go home and tell the dad that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. Better to sell him than to kill him, right? Twenty pieces of silver, and the job's done. They head back home, give dad the coat, and Jacob tears his clothes puts on sackcloth, goes into mourning, just freaks out, loses his mind. He refuses to be comforted by any of his kids or any of his wives. He is inconsolable. And he says, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. Not exactly what they had in mind. Meanwhile, merchants continue their trek to Egypt, continue uh, with all their stuff, and they get there, they sell Joseph to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, big, fancy, important guy. That's chapter 37. Now, here's a concept that I never really understood until, sadly, I was uh, much later in my life. The way people talked about the Bible when I was younger was that it was a sacred book, and in it were the directions on, about how we do things, the, the, the right things, the right way, how to be good in God's sight. So I kind of thought that everything that Bible characters did was kind of okay because they're in the Bible, right? 
These were famous Bible people. They must do it right. And I should be learning from them all the time. And so sometimes my eyes were more on the characters and less on God. Sometimes my eyes were more on what was being lived out in the moment and uh, not so much on what it was supposed to be lived out over time or what was really being displayed or what the real message of that was. So one of the best things I want to share with you that you can put into your head is that the collected historical manuscripts called the Bible are an accurate accounting of people and God's interactions, His relationship with them, His ongoing relationship with them, even when they did lousy things, sometimes horrible things. That doesn't make the horrible things good, okay? It just makes them his, the story historically accurate. No one's getting a spin job done here, okay? You see people in all of their humanity, flawed <coughs> and selfish, and just like me, maybe just like you. In the midst of all that, God remains God-like and faithful and patient and choosing to be involved in these relationships. Just keep that in mind as we go forward in this story. It applies in this story, but it also applies in, in, in all the other ones as well. But our story continues. Chapter 39, off to Egypt. Here is one of the uh, great uh, kind of summary statements that just sort of happens in passing that, we, that we, we find in Scripture displaying the impact of God's modeled commitment to relationships. So we're going to start Genesis chapter 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Verse 3, when, he, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, for Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Five, from the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. Six, so Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care, with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything besides the food that he ate. Now, that's not how the verse ends. It continues on with a bit of a foreshadowing hook, okay? It goes on and says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And you just know that is not a passing comment, okay? That is a flashing red light. Something's about to happen. God's favor rests upon Joseph and everyone in the household. Everyone in the household is benefiting because of God's blessing, flowing generously on all of them because of and through Joseph. Bam, bam, bam. Music changes, okay? Mrs. Potiphar begins to notice Joseph. She invites him to bed. He declines. My master trusts me says Joseph, I can't do it. Genesis 39, verse 9, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? S sin against God. His primary driving guidance for his life, for his relationships, for his employment is not anything before it is a direct reflection of his relationship to God. In here, there is no blaming his brothers, 
There is no blaming slavery. There is no lashing out at all of the injustice that has happened to him. There's no trash-talking Potiphar, his slave master. There is no angry, God, you abandoned me. I'm abandoned to slavery in a pagan nation, so I'm going to abandon you. The way he continues to live is as if God will work out all things, regardless of where he is and regardless of what is happening to him. But she doesn't hear no. She hears, try harder. Go get what you want. Take what you want. So she keeps coming after him. Day after day, she keeps coming. And finally, she grabs him, yanks his cloak, and and demands, come to bed with me. Joseph continues to respect God, to respect Potiphar, to respect Potiphar's wife, to respect himself. And he treats everyone involved honorably. And as the saying goes, no good deed goes unpunished. So the missus goes mental. He runs off, leaving his cloak in her hands, and hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So she gets on the phone right away. She calls the servants. She calls the police. She calls Potiphar. She'll call anyone who's going to listen. Genesis 39, 14. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew. And when you want to really make a point, Throw in a little bit of racism in there, right? To get people on your side against one of them, right? This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. 15, when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and he ran out of the house. So all the blessing comes crashing down. Joseph is in prison. He's there before his head stops spinning. Come on, God. Seriously. I, I was doing right. I was doing good. I was being respectful. I behaved honorably. I behaved righteously. And this is the thanks that I get? Have you ever felt that you deserved better than you received? I think that's a yeah. Have you ever thought or felt that by following God that you deserved more than you got. I mean, the, what's the point of following God and living honorably if it doesn't mean that things will go your way? What's the point of following at all? Just so we're clear, that's not Christianity. You know what that's called? Magic. You don't want Jesus. You want magic. Magic is when you do the right things uh, in the right ways to the right degree, and, and then I get, a, I get a measurable, knowable, predictable, preferable outcome. I said the right things. Boom, abracadabra, poof. It happens. I boldly step forward. I point my wand and I wave my hand and I get what I want. I did the right stuff, so now the right stuff should happen for me. Come on, it worked for Harry Potter and it worked for Luke Skywalker. Why not me? That's magic. That is not Christianity. Joseph remains faithful in the midst of whatever it is that's going on in his life and he 
overcomes, and he bears up under, and he comes through all with God right beside him. Chapter 39, verse 20, but while Joseph was there in prison, 21, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. God, it is not what I want, but I trust you. Because I trust you, I will live as you direct, regardless of what seems to be happening around me right now. Because I trust God, I'm going to judge my circumstances by God's love and not God's love by my circumstances. Time passes. Happens a lot in this story. Joseph is still in prison. No lawyer is working on Joseph's case. He is just in prison doing in-prison things. And the, the, the two guys get sent down from the palace, the chief cupbearer, chief baker. Some more time passes. Then each of these royal prisoners have dreams. And they are sad because there's no one available to give them interpretations. Joseph, the dream machine, says, tell me your dreams. I will ask God on your behalf for an interpretation. And so they tell him. And he hears the two dreams and he tells them, I've got some good news and i got some bad news. Good news? That's for you, cupbearer. It's going to be okay. You're about to be rehired. Bad news is for you, baker. You are going to get worse than fired. You're about to be executed. Three days later, bada-bing, bada-boom, that's exactly what happens. Baker gets impaled. Cupbearer returns to action. Joseph reminds him as he's leaving, buddy, don't forget me when you go. I am held here unjustly. I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. He goes, yeah, sure, Joseph, no problem, no problem. Thanks so much. It was great. Thanks again so much for your help with the dream stuff. He leaves and forgets all about Joseph. Time passes. Two years' worth of time passes. Now Pharaoh has a dream, and then he has another dream, and he wakes up in the morning, and he is troubled. He calls in all of his wise men, his magicians, his advisors, the, the, the smarty pants people, and he tells them his dreams. They all listen. They all look at each other and shrug their shoulders. They've got no idea. Someone's in the room. Boom! It hits the cupbearer like a ton of bricks. He slaps his forehead and he says, Joseph, hey, Pharaoh, I got a guy. I know a guy. I got a dream guy. I, I know a dream guy. You're not going to believe this. And so he tells Pharaoh what happened two years ago down in the dungeon. Pharaoh says, great, get him, bring him up, let's go. So they haul Joseph up, they give him a shave, give him some non-dungeon clothes, and it's time to meet Pharaoh. Joseph gets the quick recap on the dreams, and there's seven cows, and there's seven stalks of grain, and then there's seven more of each that are unhealthy. I Read the dreams, okay? They're in Genesis chapter 41. See what's going on there. I don't have the time to tell you the whole thing right now, but that's what's going on. Genesis 41. Pharaoh is perturbed, and he wants to know what these dreams mean, and he tells Joseph that none of the wise men, none of the magicians, none of these smarty-pants guys could help him at all. And so Joseph tells him, Pharaoh, for you... God has helped me to help you out here. He's given me to tell you the meaning of your dreams. 
I've got some great news. I've got some good news. And I got some bad news. First, the great news. God cares enough about you that He is telling you what is going to happen. You are getting the inside word. You have advance warning. That's great news. The good news is that these next seven years coming are going to be filled with abundance. It's going to all go right for you. (coughs) Bad news, after those seven years, seven good years, there's going to be seven more years, and they're going to be bad years. There's going to be famine. You have been given a glimpse into the next 14 years of your kingdom. And for you, really, the world as you know it. Talk about some serious insider trading tips there, right? So Pharaoh hears all this, takes it all in, believes it, and then asks all the court officials, the wise men, the magicians, is there anyone better than this guy with the connection to God to take care of this situation? 4139, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. Verse 40, you shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph, you're in charge of the whole Egyptian empire. Here, take my signet ring. Take, take these robes of fine linen. Somebody, grab him that chain over there and put it around his neck. Joseph went from the dungeon to second command in the greatest empire in the world at that time. He was prime minister in the largest superpower on earth. Joseph was 30 years old. And he took that job seriously. And he traveled the land, and they planned, and they organized, and they prepared. They they collected and stored food from the whole country. There were seven years of great abundance. That actually happened. And in that time, they stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that they had to stop keeping records because it was beyond measure. They ran out of numbers. Joseph, in that time he gets married, he has two sons named Manasseh and Ephraim. Quick side note. Joseph's dad's name is Jacob, and part of Jacob's story is that God changes his name to Israel. The nation. The nation is named after Jacob, or Israel, and the 12 tribes of Israel are named after Jacob's sons. But there's no tribe of Joseph. Instead of Joseph, there are tribes named Manasseh and Ephraim. So, this is an interesting story, right? I'm rushing through it, but I love this story. I've loved this story since I was a kid. But perhaps you have the same struggle uh, that I used to have. A Bible story means it's a story found in the Bible. And anything to do with the Bible tends to feel like another world. That's the way we think of it, perhaps like Narnia or Middle Earth. And even if you imagine the setting is actually planet Earth, it still feels like these stories might just be mythology, right? Ancient stories, ancient tales for the kids, a cartooned version of actual events. But remember, the Bible's not a book. It is a collection of reliable, ancient historical, trustworthy manuscripts written by a variety of authors over about 1,500 years, okay? Keep that in mind. Now, 
Have you ever heard of Mount Kilimanjaro? Right, who was expecting that question, right? No one, no one saw that coming. Uh, it's a famous mountain in Tanzania that people love to go and climb and say, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Studies in ice cores found in Mount Kilimanjaro, Tanzania, that's the mountain that supplies the Nile in Egypt with much of its water, have revealed that a massive drought took place about 3,600 years ago, and it would be right about the time of Joseph's life. We also know of another event from around that time. One of the most fertile areas in Egypt was the land around Lake Quarren. This lake was fed by water from one of the branches of the Nile. Droughts in Egypt used to cause this branch to dry up, leaving the land around it just destitute. We do know that between 1850 and 1650 B.C., a canal was built to keep the branches of the Nile permanently open, enabling water to continue to fill Lake Quarren and to keep the land fertile. The canal was so effective that it still successfully functions today. There is no record of who built the canal, but for thousands of years it has only been known by one name. In Arabic, it's Bar Yusuf. That translates into English as the waterway of Joseph. Could this canal have been built by a certain prime minister called Joseph as part of his work to save Egypt from famine? Was this prime minister the son of a Canaanite named Jacob? Okay, back to this story. Drought, okay? Seven years of drought. Drought means no rain. Water dries up, rivers dry up, lakes dry up. No, no irrigation, no crops, no food for animals to eat, no food for people to eat. There is widespread famine. Famine spreads wide, like all the way back to where Jacob is still living with the rest of Joseph's family. Genesis 42.1. When Jacob learned that there were grain, when there was still grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Two. He continued, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. So Jacob looks at his boys and he yells, road trip! And ten brothers head out to Egypt to buy some grain. Benjamin stays home just in case something bad happens. Dad is not taking any chances here. Ten brothers take their road trip to Egypt, and when they get there, they find that to buy the grain, you have to go to the officials. You have to request permission. And yeah, the official that they end up in front of, bowing their faces to the ground in front of is Joseph. Joseph, the dream machine. And it really looks like a scene from one of his dreams. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And Joseph leads them through a series of questions about where they're from and who they are and details about the family. And he remembers. Did you try again? He remembers what happened. He remembers how he got to Egypt. He remembers what they did to him. And he remembers his dreams. And he accuses them of spying, coming there to see if Egypt was left unprotected by the famine. Well, the brothers freak out, right? They're losing their minds. They're begging 
They're pleading, trying to say, we're innocent. we got to prove our innocence. And so they're describing, let me tell you our story. This is what our family looks like. This is who we are. My dad, my, my mom, we got brothers. And there were 12 brothers and 10 are here. And one was left behind with our father. And one is no more. So Joseph tells them that the only way that they're going to get out of jail is if one brother stays in prison and the rest go back and bring the youngest one back and show the youngest brother to Joseph. One's going to stay in prison until that happens. The brothers have a big discussion then about how they're being punished for treating Joseph so poorly, even when he begged for his life. The whole conversation happens right in front of Joseph, but the brothers don't think that he understands because the whole time Joseph has been talking to them, he's done it through an interpreter. <laughs> so Joseph turns away from them and he, and he begins to weep pulls himself back together, comes back, and he has Simeon, that's one of his brothers, bound right before their eyes. Joseph orders that the bags that they brought are to be filled with grain, and the silver that they paid for the grain is to be placed back inside each of the sacks, and that they should be given enough provisions for their journey back home. It's done. Donkeys are loaded, and they leave. On the way back home, one of them opens up their sack to get some feed out for his donkey, and he tells the others, oh my goodness, my silver has been returned to me. They hear this, and they all get really nervous, right? What is this that God has done to us? They got home. They tell Father Jacob. They tell him the whole story. Well, Jacob, Jacob doesn't like it at all, all right? There is no way I'm sending Benjamin to Egypt. Ain't going to happen. So they stay at home, leaving Buddy in the prison until all the food that they had brought has been eaten. Jacob says, you got to go back. That's the only place we can get food. But the boys say, we can't go back. We can't go back without Benjamin. If we don't bring Benjamin, we're all going to jail. we got to show him to Joseph. So Jacob relents and he tells them to take double the money to repay what they already bought and to buy what they need now. Also tells them, bring along some other gifts as well. They head back to Egypt. Uh, and they show Benjamin to Joseph. Joseph tells his steward to take the brothers to my house. Take them over there and, and prepare a meal. <coughs> brothers are nervous. They think this is all about the silver that had been placed in their packs. And they're afraid. They're afraid that they're about to be turned into slaves. What a horrible way to be treated, to be made a slave. So they try and explain about the money. We didn't take it, man. Honest. you got to believe me. But look, even if we did, we brought it all back. We brought it back. We brought the money back for, the, for this purchase as well. So they have dinner. Joseph has his brothers all seated at the table, and he arranged them in order of their ages. And they're kind of amazed by that and a little unsettled. <coughs> Joseph tells his steward, fill the man's sacks with as much food as they can carry, load it up, and put all the silver back in the packs. And then take my silver cup and put it in one of the sacks as well. Morning comes. The brothers all leave. Joseph waits a little bit, and then he tells his steward, go after them, okay? When you catch them, ask them why they have returned evil for good, and then reveal the cup. The brothers all say they would never steal anything, and in fact, they had even returned the extra silver from the last ordeal. We are so confident that we are innocent. Uh, and they're assuring the Egyptians, they're so confident that they say this, Genesis 44, 9, if any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. 
and the rest of us will become the Lord's slaves. We got no concern about this. The Egyptians say, as you wish. And you can just feel that this thing is about to spiral out of control. The cup is found in Benjamin's sack. They all tear their clothes in a sign of great sadness, and they're hauled back to the city. Joseph's waiting. The brothers all throw themselves in front of him on the ground, again, begging for mercy. They declare that they will be his slaves, and Joseph said that he would never do something that unfair. I'll just keep Benjamin, the one caught with the cup. Judah, one of the brothers, speaks up, please, please, sir, you can't hurt Benjamin. Our old father would be broken by grief. He will die of mourning. Instead, keep me. Right? Let me be your slave instead of Benjamin. Let Benjamin go. Joseph cries out. He tells all of his attendants and servants, everyone, get out! And he begins sobbing, just howling, so that even the people who are not in the room hear what is happening. Genesis 45, 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers... We're not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Joseph calms them down. He explains the story. He tells them to go back home and to bring Jacob and the rest of the family. And Joseph will set them all up in, the, in an area known as Goshen. I want you to come here because there's still five years of famine left. Pharaoh learns about the family reunion and he gives the big thumbs up and he tells them all that they're all going to be really well taken care of, don't worry. Jacob and everyone else left in the clan and the household pack up everything and they move to Egypt. Jacob and all his sons and his sons, maybe you've heard of them, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Gad, Asher, Dan, Naphtali, and Benjamin all come with all of their families. Time passes. Jacob dies. With his death, the brothers start feeling nervous again about what they had done to Joseph so many years before. Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And ironically to them, yes, he would be. 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. 21, so then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke to them kindly. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. There's two separate ledgers that seem to always be held in tension between the God who is good and and all-powerful and the absurdity and insanity of the presence of evil that makes no sense, that, that, that God neither wills nor causes, yet it is so pervasive. story of Joseph is done, but his legacy, his influence, and his example lives on as we too seek to live in a way that trusts God in the fearful places, that trusts God, walks with God as we overcome walks with God as we bear up under, and walks with God as we come through. Jesus leads us to follow 
to trust God because even when evil might swirl all around you, God is not deterred and God is not overwhelmed. And even if evil was done to you, God can redirect it for good. Father, thanks for your faithfulness. Thanks for the way that you have worked in history. Thanks for preserving these these texts so that we could hear of the way that you relate. Not just the things that people do, but the way that you treat the relationships that you commit to. You've committed in relationship to us. You're willing before we are. Willing to stand by. Willing to transform. Willing to work in and to work through. God, as we go forward, make this sense of partnership with you part of a badge of honor for us, that we would be proud to be known as partners with God in this world, that we would work in such a way that we would reveal, that we would delight in as we display what it's like to be in relationship to God. I pray that we would hear a story like this, history, proof of what you're like, proof of how you have acted in the past, and gain faith from it for how we can trust you in our present and in our future. Take what we have heard, turn it into learning. Speak into us that as we go out this week, you would also be able to speak through us to those who are disoriented, displaced, disappointed. Let us be agents of hope, givers of love, welcomers where we go. May we be known for our kindness as that springs from the Spirit coming to life within us. Thanks again for all you do for us, in us and through us. Thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.